Good morning. You may be seated. You're going to need version uh, for some extra notes this morning. So if you have the version app, there will be some things in there, as always, that we will not be able to cover this morning. Uh, uh, many of you have purchased already a journal uh, that contains 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the journal. They're for selling the coffee bar. Uh, there may be some left. I don't know. I didn't check the inventory when I came by this morning. Uh, and so for those of you who are journaling, I may tell you, underline this, draw an arrow here, something like that. Or some of you may be journaling in your Bible. And uh, I might just give a little plug to Erica's uh, Wednesday night group here. Uh, this is an awesome thing. To, uh, uh, the, the Bible is not meant to be this holy book that you put a shrine to in your home and bow down and worship. The Bible is a textbook. Man, when I read my Bible, I've got a highlighter in one hand, a, a pen in the other hand, and I'm, I'm, I'm dog-earing corners of pages, and I'm putting post-it tabs in there, and I'm dividing off sections, and uh, I, I attack my Bible uh, like I would attack a, 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 a textbook almost. And uh, uh, so I really i am encouraging you, those of you who are in that journaling group on Wednesday nights, uh, listen to what Rachel's saying, and the whole goal is if, if it helps us learn, if it helps us get closer to God, uh, you know, that's what it's all about. Uh, we try to do many different types of sermons, so I would just say to those who are new here, last week we did a roundtable, today we start a series, uh, and the style of this series called Expository, which means we're going to teach through a book of the Bible, in this case, three books of the Bible, just all in a row, uh, right, just going to go right through them. It's an expository sermon series. We just came off the series on the heavenly hosts, a series about angels. This is a topical sermon series. So if you're new here, I just want to say this to you. There's a lot of planning, prayer, and preparation that go into feeding God's people here at Cornerstone. It's not something we take lightly or flip it. A lot of work goes into, a lot of prayer into how we feed God's people uh, that we are, we are shepherding. And we try to, I know you don't want to eat spaghetti every meal three times a day. And you may love spaghetti, but it gets old at some point, right? And so when we approach the Word of God, we believe it's a sin to present it to you in a way that's boring. The Bible is not boring. Only teachers are boring. And God's Word's very exciting, and there's so much for our lives in it. So what we try to do is we try to mix the menu up. Does that make sense? So that you get expository, you'll get at least two expository series a year, and uh, a lot of topical built in there and, and some other things. All right, let's get right to it. We're going to study 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, if you, you're really in a seminary classroom now for a few weeks, so just prepare for that. Uh, the word epistle, if you see in your Bible some of the epistle of Peter or the epistle of John. The word epistle just means letter. Uh, and uh, for many of you who are young, you may have never written a letter in your life. There's something very special and very personal and very intimate about a letter. And I would say for those of you who are, you know, want to win, win someone's heart, listen up, guys, you want to win someone's heart, uh, get in the letter writing business and learn to put some your thoughts and feelings onto a piece of paper and uh, put that thing in old snail mail and send it to somebody. Uh, it means a lot. You'll be shocked, Okay. So the word epistle means letter, and today we begin a study of the epistles of John the Apostle, that is 1st, 2nd, 
and 3 John. They're way over in the right near the end of your Bible. They're very small books, but they're loaded. So let's get right to the introduction to the series. Who is the author of the letters? When you study a book of the Bible, you want to try to figure out who wrote this. Now, the Bible, the people who publish the Bible that you have has done the hard lifting for you. And so at the top of the page, it'll usually tell you the epistles of John. But you're asking, how do we know uh, who wrote this? Do we know that John wrote this? And this is a thing that theologians love to do, is to make sure and dissect history and and figure out how do we know. uh, Because the letters of John themselves, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, in the text of the letter, it never says, this is John the Apostle writing to you, blah, 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 blah. The letters never say that John is the author of the letters. However, we have 2,000 years of strong church history tradition, strong evidence that's been handed to us where people have already figured all of this out long before us. And, and, and our understanding that John wrote these is supported with a, uh, a lot of historical evidence. First of all, the Gospel of John, and when I say Gospel, those are different books in your Bible. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books in your New Testament. The Gospel of John, the writing in the Gospel of John, the language, the way it's written, the phraseology, the, the, it sounds just like 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So if you say, how do they know John wrote this? Go read the Gospel of John, and you'll begin to see the same phrasing in the Gospel of John. They're written in very, very similar style. In 1 John chapter 1, we know John's the author because whoever's claiming to write 1 John chapter 1 says, I'm an eyewitness, I'm giving personal testimony as an eyewitness to the life, death, ministry, and message of Jesus Christ. Whoever's writing these three letters says, I'm sitting at the table. I'm there. I'm in the room. You want to know what happened? I'm there. I could lift my hand in a court of law and say, I swear to tell the truth. I'm an eyewitness to all of the things that the new... So that narrows the list down to about 12 guys and some women right there. I mean, so we know he's in the room. The early church fathers, so when I say that, I mean the religious people who believe like us that lived way back there, really close to the time of Jesus... 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century, the early church fathers, Polycarp, burned him at the stake for his faith. Ignatius, these are disciples of John, just like you have disciples here in Cornerstone or in the community, and you're investing in people. John invested in these early church fathers. Polycarp, Ignatius, Irenaeus, these guys are all unanimous in their writings in those first and second centuries when those men are writing their own books they're talking about the fact that John the one they knew the apostle of Jesus wrote first second and third John I'll give you an easy one how do you know John wrote first second third John because his name is at the top of every ancient manuscript that's ever been found does that make sense every time they dug up a letter and it said in the beginning it starts talking about these things and I'm not with it says at the top of the page these are the letters of John so all the ancients knew that the author of these books was John the son of Zebedee. That same John the disciple and apostle of Jesus Christ. The same John who wrote the book of Revelation 
and the Gospel of John, those are his other writings, he is the same John that wrote the letters, the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So these writings that we're going to study are referred to as the Johannine books. So if you ever read outside reading and you're reading some religious book and they throw these terms on the page and you're like, what does that mean? Johannine books or Johannine corpus. When you see the word corpus, what do you think of? A body. So John's body of work, the books that John wrote, the Johannine corpus, this is part of the first, second, third, John are part of the Johannine corpus, John's body of work. If you write five or six books in your lifetime, we'll call it, you know, the, the, the Damonin the Damon, the corpus. That's what we would call it. Yeah, the Damonin corpus. So it's the Johannine corpus. So we know who wrote it. To whom was it written? All right, by now there are many churches in Asia Minor. It's modern-day Turkey, western Turkey, over near the coast of Greece. Uh, I've not traveled to Western Turkey, and that, Sean, that's on my bucket list. We were talking about bucket lists. The ruins of these churches, like Ephesus, and, and, and they're all still there. The grave of John the Apostle is in Ephesus, actually. It's marked with a stone that says, and there's some pillars there, this is the grave of the Apostle John beneath these ruins. So they, you know, uh, John moved out of Jerusalem. He's got the mother of Jesus with him. Because at the cross, Jesus said, take care of my mother. And John said, I'm on it. I'll, I'll be a son to her. She'll be my mother from this point. So he took Mary out of Jerusalem. There's a big problems going on in Jerusalem. Rome's going to destroy it in about 30 years. John got out before that. We'll talk about that. And he gets to Ephesus, to western uh, Turkey. And in western Turkey, Paul's already ministered there. Priscilla and Aquila have already ministered there. Apollos is ministering there. And now John is ministering there and making disciples. Timothy has already pastored the church of Ephesus there. And the disciples are spreading. Christianity is spreading. And John has many disciples there. And many churches are being planted in western Turkey from Ephesus outward. We would call those Johannine communities. So, just to make it simple, churches that John started, churches that John influences, churches were filled with John's disciples, Johannine communities. And one of the coolest things in the world would be at the end of your life, if you could go to see the Savior and say there are several communities that have been influenced by my disciple making. It has spread, and now we've got the Jeremine communities out here, these bodies of people that we have have influence. All right, when were the books written? Let's get to some dates now. The New Testament books, all the New Testament books, are recording events that happened in the first century of this Christian era in which we live. Meaning, the New Testament books are describing events that took place somewhere between the year 1 and 100 A.D. Yet, the books of the New Testament were not written until the second half of the first century. Now let me see if I can explain this to you. It's helpful if you divide the first century, the first hundred years of this era, divide it into three periods of Christian activity, and then assign uh, books or actions to the three periods of the first century. It'll make sense here. Let me put it up on the screen. So the first period is A.D. 1 to 33. So let's take the first hundred years of the Christian century Between A.D. 1 and 33, the most notable thing that happened on planet Earth was 
the birth and life of a man called Jesus of Nazareth. Amen? So this is what the first period of this is about. It's about Jesus being born and its life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, the whole thing. So this represents Jesus' lifetime. This is where all of the events of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, happened. They actually happened in this period, yet none of the Gospels were written in this period. This is what I want you to digest. Everything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John happened in this period, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not write them down in this period. They've got it up here, okay? And it's only later that they're going to sit down and say, wow, God's really inspired me to write this down so we can pass it to our uh, a progeny, to our children, to our disciples, okay? So this is where the events of the gospel happened, but no New Testament books were written during this period. If you're a journalist, I'll give you a second to, to absorb that. The second period of the first century then would be A.D. 33 to A.D. 60. This is a time of great gospel expansion through the Roman Empire. Now, this is what we know. Now we're getting to the book of Acts, and we're, we're moving on out now, okay? This is a time in the Mediterranean world, in the Roman Empire world, where the apostles, the disciples of Jesus Christ are now taking the gospel. This is Paul going to Europe. This is uh, Thomas going to India, going east. This is the gospel going to North Africa. This is Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other... It's starting to happen now. This is a time of great gospel expansion through the Roman Empire. And this is where the first epistles of the New Testament are written. The first book in the New Testament begins to be written somewhere now around 48 to 49. You're going to see 1 Thessalonians and Galatians start to come into the picture and the first books of the New Testament are being written. The first book of the New Testament to be written was not Matthew. It makes sense that the Gospels are there first because the events happened first, 1 to 33 AD. Does that make sense? But they have not yet been written down. Later over here, Paul is actually going to write the first letters but they don't tell the story. The story doesn't flow right, so you've got to put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the gospel expansion, and the first epistles are now being written around 48, 49. The third period of the first century, A.D. 60 to A.D. 100, this is characterized as a time of great doctrinal and ecclesial unification. Ecclesial is a church word. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. Ecclesiastical movement, church movement. So if you see this ecclesia, ecclesia, ecclesia in the Greek, it means in a called out assembly church. So it's a church word. It's all it means. It just means church. This is a time of great church doctrine unification. It means already heresy is creeping into the churches. So somewhere by about 60, you're going to see the gospel writers like Paul and John begin to pull people together and say, hey, let's get the story unified now. You got some error creeping in here. Now, let's set the record straight. I'm an eyewitness of this, and I'm going to tell you what really happened. Don't listen to these false teachers that are pulling people away from the truth. Now, this is what happened 60 to 100. This is when the Gospels and most of the New Testament books were actually put onto paper. This is when they were written. Somewhere between 60 and 100. Now John's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, his gospel, the biography of Jesus that John wrote, 
he wrote somewhere around AD 85 uh, to 90. Somewhere 85 to 90, the gospel was written. It's been in circulation for about 10 years before the letters of John get into circulation. So since the gospel showed up about 85 to 90, we know that the letters for 2nd and 3rd John show up somewhere 90 to 95. Easy enough? So the books we're about to study are written somewhere around 90 to 95. John did all of his writing in the third period of this first century. If you divide into three periods, John wrote all of his books, the gospel, 1st and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. They're all written in the third period, the latter part of the first century. When you're studying a series of books like this, one of the things you want to ask yourself is why in the world is he writing these letters? What's the purpose for the books? Just like you do in a literature class, you're approaching the scripture as literature, and you're saying, is there any obvious reason we can see in reading these letters that John is writing these letters? And there is. It jumps right off the page when you begin to study. John is writing with the protective approach of a disciple maker. Some people use the words he's writing with a pastor's heart, but that's, let me make it simpler for you. Uh, if you never make disciples, you really don't become protective of other people. But when you begin to make disciples, and you invest your life into other people, and pour your life into people, and they're sitting at your kitchen table or on your couch week after week, and you're praying together, and you're crying together, and you're working through Scripture together, and you're memorizing the Word of God together, you as the disciple maker become a shepherd. Now again, we did a round table on this. Technically, you become their pastor. The word pastor, that's what it means. To feed, to protect, to guide their life, to lead them into Scripture. You are pastoring them. People ask us a lot, do you believe in women pastors? Well, I've been so beat up about this for the last few years. Listen, we have 50 of them here. They're not ordained ministers, and that's where you're confused. But we have lots of women who can open the Word of God and sit down with you and teach you the Word of God and pour their life into you. And I want you to know they're very protective of their cubs. As they should be. Listen, the male disciple makers in this church, you get very connected to your people. And you get very protective of them. So when you're reading 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you're like, I wonder why he's writing this. Oh, you'll see very quickly. He's writing like a loving father. He's writing like a disciple maker, and he, he, he wants to be very protective. And here's what we learn when we begin to read, really, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, all of them, really. We learn that some leaders in the Johannan community or in the Turkey community of churches, Western Turkey, Asia Minor community of churches, some religious leaders departed, split, left, fractured, the churches of the Johannan community. Some leaders in those churches pulled out from John's leadership and they started their own movements which taught that Jesus was not the Son of God, which taught that Jesus did not die and rise from the dead, which began to teach heterodoxy, falsehood about Jesus Christ and they displayed a lack of hospitality towards other believers they, 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 de they developed this walled-in religious system where they kept everybody out rather than knocking the walls down and telling people, we want you to come in. Maybe you've experienced this in your own Christian journey. 
a, a little club that's more about separation than it is reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyway, these false teachers pulled out from John and they mistreated John. Uh, uh, they mistreated other believers and they started their, their own thing. Matter of fact, we read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Let me just pull a verse out real quick. They went out. Here's what John says to his followers. They went out from us, but they were not all of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. So let me just contextualize it for you a little bit because I think many of you most of you, listen, when we have coffee together and you're saying, Pastor, listen, we're thinking about connecting to Cornerstone and, and becoming a member. Here's the typical conversation. But man, we've been really hurt. Man, we've had some really bad church experiences. I mean, that's just the normal conversation that we have with people. And I get that. I want to tell you a secret. I've had some bad church experiences too. I've been hurt too. I mean, I see some pastors sitting here. It comes with the territory. Now, it shouldn't be that way. And I'm not giving this as an excuse. It should not be this way. But hurt comes along the way. And so really John's writing to his disciples like a loving disciple maker to put his arms around and say, I know you're hurt and I know you're confused. Because it's just like today. When there's a failure of leadership in a church fellowship, it leaves the Christians confused. It leaves them hurt. It leaves them wondering What's going on behind the scenes that I don't know about? And in this context of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the Christians in the Johannan community were quite upset and quite confused because they didn't really understand what was happening. So John articulates two consistent truths about the leaders who have begun to hurt people and, and fracture the church. And the two truths that John puts forth, you're going to see them, is one, those leaders do not love other believers. And you can tell by the hurt they're causing. My first thought, John said, is to, to help you and comfort you and protect you. Their first thought is themselves. They do not love other believers. And number two, they're denying that Jesus is the Christ. And by the time we get to chapter 1 of 1 John, you're really going to see this. So here's what I want to say to you. When you look at John, it's really beautiful John's first thought was not to correct those who were in the wrong. When these letters begin, John doesn't step up onto his soapbox and say, I want to rip these guys a new one who are causing all these problems. He doesn't do that. Instead, John's first thought is to comfort his disciples and protect them. And I want you to know that's really the heart of a disciple maker right there. Not to, not to write the record and set everybody straight. And I got I to, gotta, you know, tell everybody what... That's not John's attitude at all. John's attitude is, I love you and I don't want you to be hurt. And I just want to wrap my arms around you and help you make sense of what's happening right now and tell you, stay connected to Jesus. You just follow Christ, trust the leadership, the elders of the church, and follow Christ and things are going to be okay. And John's first response to these Christians is he calls them his beloved children. My loved, my very loved children. So it's not surprising, let me hurry, that the first two major themes of John, the two big themes of John, are going to be love for others and holding to the truth about Jesus Christ. 
And you'll see these themes recirculate through 1 John over and over and over. Trust Jesus is the Son of God. He is who he claims to be. God manifest in the flesh. And hold on to that truth and don't lose it. And maintain your love for other people. Because see, when we get hurt, walls go up. When we hurt, hearts get hardened. When we are hurt, we get calloused. When we are hurt, we get pessimistic. We get jaded. Uh, we get skeptical of everyone and everything. Who's trying to take advantage of me? What is their angle? What, what, you see what I'm saying? We get that kind of attitude. And John's like, don't be that way. Because of the hurt, don't let it cause all of this walls to come up. Stay loving, stay tender. Uh, you know. So you see, what you're going to learn in First John is it's not possible to know God without true love. Amen. Nor is it possible to know him if you deny that Jesus is the Christ. That's why those two themes are so important. As you're going to discover in this study, the truth about Jesus and love are always intertwined. The truth about who Jesus is and love are always connected together. They are never separated. Whether that's in the Gospels or in the Epistles, the truth about who Jesus is and love, that comes in one package to you. Gosh, we were sitting at the wedding yesterday. I'm just thinking through, you know, now these three things abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is... Yeah, and it just keeps abiding and keeps enduring. And the truth about Christ and love are going to be inseparable. There are six characters in this series. So there's not a long cast and it won't be too confusing. But there are six characters. Uh, The one who's writing calls himself the elder. So when you see elder, elder to the elect lady. Elder is John referring to himself. He's the elect elder. Now, uh, this is why also as a church, you know, we're, we've had a roundtable on this where we talked about, you know, probably in the near future we'll move to an elder board, deacon board, restructure just a little bit the way our church is structured. And uh, there are only two people, well, nobody calls themselves pastor in the New Testament, actually. They use the word bishop. But there's two men in the New Testament that do call themselves elder, Peter and John. And here is John calling himself the elder. It's a, like a teaching elder overseer of the church. So elder is John. You're going to see the term elect lady. The elder to the elect lady. Who is this woman that John is writing to? Well, it's not really a woman. The elect lady is a church. It's a sister church. So when John says, you know, you know how we refer to America as she. Or if you own a boat, it's named after a she. Okay? So what he's saying is the church... He feminized it with a metaphor, and he said, you know, Cornerstone Baptist to Grace Fellowship in Ohio, to the elect lady of Ohio, greetings. He's referring to a church here. All right, and you'll see another term, her children. Who do you think the her children would be? It would be the disciples or the members of the church, the people of that church, right? To the elect lady and her children. If John were writing to us this morning, he would say, to the elect lady in Fort Worth and her children. Speaking of you, the members, the disciples of, of the church of Christ. Now there's three men's names mentioned in the series. If you're journaling, you're going to get these real quick, okay? Gaius. And next to Gaius in your journal, write these two words. Good guy. Good guy. Okay? Gaius is a gracious leader of one of the regional churches in the Johannine community. 
he is being encouraged uh, by John uh, to receive people that are acting as missionaries. And you'll see his name mentioned in in just a, a little bit, okay? There's another guy. His name is Diotrephes. Diotrephes. Next to his name, I want you to write bad guy. Bad guy. Gaius is a good guy. He's a good leader of a regional church. Diotrephes is a bad guy. He's a leader of a regional church who's acting like a jerk. He will not receive any of John's people. He won't help them. He won't give them a cup of water. If one of John's disciples showed up in the city of Diotrephes, Diotrephes wouldn't give him a place to sleep, a glass of water, or a chicken nugget. He's a jerk. Okay, all right, we got one more character, Demetrius. Next to Demetrius, you can write, good guy, good guy. I'm glad the good guys outnumber the bad guys in this story. Uh, Demetrius is a good guy. Demetrius is a disciple-making missionary. He's what you are, somebody who spreads the gospel, somebody who makes disciples, someone maybe who moves from town to town and, and helps Forms small groups and helps start churches and helps encourage believers. He's a good guy. He's the disciple-making missionary, the disciple-making believer who was rejected by Diotrephes. Diotrephes said, drop dead. I will not even give you a cup of water. And so he had to go off discouraged. That's Demetrius. He's a good guy. He's trying to do the right thing. But he can't get help from some of these so-called Christian communities and John says, I'm not even sure they're Christian communities, but they won't help you, and they've rejected you, but it's going to be okay, Demetrius. Okay, so now that's, you got the characters, you know why it was written, you know when it was written, you know to whom it was written. All right, let's get to the, some more nitty-gritty here then. How are the letters of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John related? There's three of them. So what's the connection between the three letters or epistles of John, because you see, when you read First John, First John doesn't feel like a letter. First John, you know how a letter—I mean, you've all written letters or emails at least. You know how a, a letter would open. You know, dear Daryl, comma, hi, it's Bobby. Uh, hope things are good with you. You doing okay? How's the wife and kids? Listen. Now, you're still employed, wonderful. But it would start in a certain way that would be familiar to all. Hi, how are you? Greeting, comma, this, yeah. It doesn't feel like a letter. Matter of fact, if you guys have the first verse of 1 John, let's put it, here we go. Here's how 1 John starts. Now, imagine me telling you this is a letter, and it starts like this. That, that. Who starts a letter like this? No, hello, how you doing? How's the wife and kids? It's... In other words, you write a letter to someone, you just start that which was from the beginning. You're just like, who is this? What is this? Why is this? You know, that which is from the beginning, you don't start a personal letter like this, okay? And that's what I want you to know. And you're like, well, pastor, you just told us these are the letters, the epistles of John, and now you're telling us it's not a letter. Let me explain. The reason that 1 John doesn't sound like a letter is because 2 John is actually the cover letter to 1 John. Which means 1 John is really this beautiful poetic sermon that builds on the themes that Jesus is teaching 
in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 of the Gospel of John. John takes the teaching of Jesus in John Gospel 13 to 17 and he pulls it over here and he rebuilds those messages of Jesus and themes of Jesus. Gosh, this church surely should know this. John 17. I feel like you could quote it by now. Amen? Father, I have finished the work you sent me to do. And now I'm praying that you would glorify me. I'm praying now for my disciples. This is John 17. Surely this church knows this. John said, I'm praying for my disciples. The whole chapter. Do you understand? Because Jesus' disciples are going to be mortified in a few hours when he's killed. They're going to be blown apart emotionally. John now is writing to his disciples who have undergone a trauma. And he's taking the teaching of Jesus. I'm leaving you, John 14. I go, but it's going to be okay. I'm going. The same teaching of Jesus, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. John's repackaging it now to his disciples and saying, now I know why Jesus taught me that because now I'm going to repackage it and teach you exactly what Jesus did. I'm going to comfort you in the same way Jesus comforted me and Jesus warned us about things and I'm going to warn He's just repackaging the material of Jesus and giving it to his own readers. So that's what 1 John really is. 1 John was a sermon sent to a specific church originally with the idea that it would be given to that church and that church then would take it after studying it, reading it, and copying it and would give it to a sister church. And then that letter would circulate through all the Johannine communities. And then that letter would go beyond the Johannine communities to every Christian church in the world. You say, Pastor, how do you know that's true? Because you have it in your hand right now. That's how I know it's true. Not only did it get circulated through Turkey, it got circulated through Europe, it got circulated through Virginia, Tennessee, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Kentucky, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and made it way to Texas because we got it in our hands this morning. So yeah, it got circulated. And 1 John was originally given to a specific church. 2 John is sitting on top of 1 John as the cover letter to the original church the first church that got the message. Does that make sense? So wherever this letter went first, John said, I'm going to put a cover letter on it. Here's the real message I want circulated, but I'm giving the cover letter to the first church, and I'll address you and some specific things. So let me, let me see if I can role play it with you. So John sent Demetrius out with First John in his hands. And John said, okay, that's not good enough. Let me put a cover letter on the message I want circulated. And the cover letters to the first church. Read it, copy it, then circulate it. That's the cover letter. That is the book of Second John. But as Demetrius went out to deliver the Johannan message to the Johannan community churches, as Demetrius went to deliver that letter, he ran into opposition. Dotrys gave him cold shoulder. The boot wouldn't receive him. And some other guys likewise. And so he's getting discouraged. Does that make sense? <laughs> this is what's happening. He's got the letter, the, the message, a, a, and a cover letter, but some wouldn't receive him, like Dotrophy. So here's what John does. John says, come here. Come here, Demetrius. Let me see if I can solve this problem. So I'm going to write a third letter. The third letter 
is a letter of recommendation certifying that Demetrius is a good guy who represents the teaching of the truth, is a minister of the truth, and is a true disciple of John, the apostle of Jesus Christ. So let me see if I can go through it one more time. So John writes a third letter saying, when you go, Demetrius, here's 1 John, put the cover letter, 2 John on top of it, but you're going to need a letter of recommendation. It looks like some people aren't going to open the door. Some people may not open the door anyway, but I'll give you a letter of recommendation. So take 3 John and now put 3 John on top of 2 John. You see a pattern here? Is it making sense now what John's doing? John's, so really, if you want to know what order the books of the Johannan Corpus go in related to the epistles, this is the order. 3 John's letter of recommendation. 2 John's cover letter to the original church that's going to get it. 1 John is actually the message that John wants to deliver to the Christian community. Now, here's what's really cool. We have all of this in, in our Bibles. And what's really cool is we have 1 John sitting right there in our Scripture. Hand, it was handwritten by John, one of the original disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. The man who wrote these words sat in the room with Jesus. The man who wrote these words laid his head on Jesus' shoulder at the Last Supper. The man who wrote these words witnessed the miracle standing there watching with his own eyes. The man who wrote these words traveled with Jesus and lived with him for years. Saw him both before and after the resurrection. Cared for the mother, Mary, of Jesus Christ after Jesus ascended to heaven. For all we know, Mary lived with John until her death. This is a pretty significant fellow is what I'm saying to you. And he wrote these words and he's delivered them to us. Now I can only assume that we have 1 John arranged in our Bibles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. I can only assume that we have 1 John sitting in the first position in our Bibles because 1 John is the actual message that the Apostle John wanted us to get. In other words, these are just the cover letter and the introduction, which are helpful, you'll see in just a minute. But the real message John wanted to deliver to us is sitting in 1 John over here which is why we'll really study it the most over the coming weeks. And I think that's the reason why when they arranged the books of our Bible, they put John, 1 John, in the first position because it's the real message that we want to study. Now, i got about five, ten minutes, and I need to launch now into 3 John. You ready to go? Go quickly with me now. When you study 3 John, I'm going to study it first because it makes sense to us now. When you read 3 John, it's only this long. It's just a few verses, okay? Because it's just a hello. That's all it is. Letter of introduction is all it is. When you read 3 John, what you discover quickly is it is a call. It's not only a letter of recommendation, but it's a call to partnership in missions. Because the guy who's trying to deliver this message is a missionary. He's a disciple maker. And so when John writes 3 John, the letter of introduction... It's a call for churches to partner together, for Christians to partner together, to join hands in the congregation and pool our resources so that we can show hospitality, which means basically to give to missions. Let me show you. It's about partnership and missions. Let me read quickly. 3 John 1.1. The elder. Who's that? To the beloved Gaius. Good guy or bad guy? Whom I love in truth. John said, I love you, Gaius. You're a great guy. 
Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. If you're journaling, underline that last phrase because now Demetrius shows up in this city and he, he opens the letter and said, here, this is from John. And John, Agaius begins to read John's greeting and imagine if the apostle John, the disciple and apostle of Jesus of Nazareth, wrote you a letter. Let me, let me spin it around on you. What would happen if you went to a small group tonight and your disciple maker passed everybody out in the group a letter? And you opened that letter and it was your third John. And your disciple maker, Letty Jared, is writing to you. And it says something like, Dear Disciple, I just want to take a minute tonight before we start to show you how much, to tell you how much I love you. You're so precious to me. I pray for you. I'm guarding you like a mama bear does her cubs so that Satan doesn't distract you. You mean so much to me. And listen, you're not going to fail. You're going to succeed because I'm not going to let you fail. And Jesus isn't going to let you fail. And we may go through some hardship, but I want you to know we're going to go through them together and the Holy Spirit's going to be with you and I'm going to be with you and Jesus is going to be with both of us. And it's all going to work out. Can you imagine what that would mean to you? Maybe we ought to try that. Gaius opens the letter And he hears the Apostle John, this is somebody now, saying to him, I just want to put my arms around you and love on you guys because you're a good guy. I can imagine how emotional, I bet a tear rolled out of the corner of Gaius' eye when he started reading 3 John. Before I move on, I asked you to underline a phrase and I want you to notice just in passing because it's kind of a cornerstone thing here. John says, I pray you're in good health even it goes well with your soul. I want you to see how John, the apostle of Jesus Christ, connects physical health and spiritual health. And last week I connected mental health. And I just want to say to you, God wants us healthy. And you say, well, what does that mean, Pastor, physically, spiritually, or mentally? Yes is the answer. Yes is the answer. Yes, let's be all. Because you know what? I'm not just a brain living outside of a body. I'm not just a body I'm a whole human being, and God wants me all healthy, is the truth. And this disciple maker is saying to his disciples, listen, let's do some yoga together. Let's stretch those hammies. Okay, good. Now let's read our Bible. Okay, let's pray. Okay, let's talk out our problem. He wants them healthy in every sense of the issue. Verse number three, for I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. Didn't mean subjective truth. It means this. As indeed you are walking in the truth. Underline walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are, underline it, walking in the truth. You say, what does walking have to do? Are we back to working out? No, now he's talking spiritually. (laughs) He's not talking physically. Because walking is a Jewish metaphor to describe how you live your life. If I said to you, hey Johnny, how's your walk? Johnny wouldn't say, I got some new ASICs, man, they're really comfortable, and I'm breaking them in. He wouldn't say that. He would say something like, well, I've been in the Word four days last week. I missed a couple of days, and I'm trying to be more consistent in my prayer. I'm treating my wife and my kids right. Things are going good, Pastor. My walk is strengthening. Is that fair? That's what we would say. That's what we'd say. Walk has, it's a metaphor for how you live your life. If you're using version this morning, I've I've, sorry, Jeremy, I do this as the generic we. 
Jeremy builds you version for me every week with my notes. Jeremy has laid out for you. When I say I, you understand it means Jeremy. Uh, I'd like to run five miles this afternoon, by the way. Can you do that for me? All right. Uh, walking is a Jewish metaphor for how we live our life. And I've pasted all the verses in you version, Psalm 1, 1, Psalm 15, 2, Romans. You see them all there where the Bible talks about how our, our walk means how you live your life. So when he says you walk in the truth, it means you live your life in the truth. You support the truth with the way you live your life. Verse 5, beloved, is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts. Somebody should underline that. Serving God is intentional and requires effort. Partnering together for missions and the spread of the gospel. Let me say this. Making disciples is, requires effort, intentionality, scheduling. It, you see, it's effort. Effort is a key word of this book. He said, I'm so thankful for your efforts. You're exerting yourself for, a perp- for these brothers, strangers as they are. It's a great thing you might want to underline as well. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Who testified to your love before the church. <clears throat> you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out, underline this, for sake of the name. These guys that are spreading the gospel and making disciples. You who are making disciples are making disciples for the sake of the name. Pray tell whose name we're making disciples for. You'll see all the verses pasted in you version. This is a common phrase in the New Testament. When it says something about they went out for sake of the name, they're living for the name, they go out in the power of the name, it means the name of Jesus Christ. So these guys, John's describing, and Demetrius is one of them. He's saying to Gaius, Gaius received Demetrius because he's one of the good guys. He's gone out for the sake of the name. And I know he's a stranger to you. Now listen, when we partner together for missions, you're giving money to people you've never... Is anybody in here never personally met a man named Koshil Ningtangsa? Never met him. You support him. Deacons are meeting right now because we got a little crisis we're about to solve for him. <coughs> you support him. <coughs> You've never met him. So here's what I'm going to say to you. He's a practical stranger to you. I've sat on the floor with him and his wife and eaten a lot of momos and noodles and rice. He's one of the best disciple makers on planet earth. He's one of the best youth leaders I've ever met in my life. And he lives in a persecuted place, which we're not going to name. And you support him and love him, stranger as he is to you. So here's my question. Why do you support him and love him? Because somebody recommended him to you and said, I know him. He's my disciple. And so you show him hospitality because I vouched for it. Does that make sense? That's what's happening right here. It's a missions letter. And I want to say to you that hospitality was an important social feature of the first century. Hospitality created friendships between communities. And and as hospitality was shown, now listen, missions, I'm giving you first century missions now. You didn't come together in a church, give an offering, and it got sent overseas. First century missions, you opened your home. This is what looks very different. They didn't take up an offering to send to a missionary. The missionary came to your city and knocked on your door and said, Hi, I'm a disciple of John, need a place to sleep. And you moved your kids out of their bed, and you moved this stranger into one of your bedrooms. And you said, what do you like to eat? I'll get it ready for dinner. 
and Christians became inconvenienced to show hospitality to other Christians who were traveling. They gave them bedding, they gave them support, they gave them gas money, they gave them food out of their own refrigerator, and they received strangers into their homes until the stranger could go on to the next community. Does that make sense? There are no, no holiday inn. Matter of fact, if you stayed at a if you stayed at an inn in the first century, it's a brothel. Can anybody see a problem with the missionary movement of John and Paul and say, hey, just here's, here's 20 bucks, go stay at the next inn. You're just telling the pastor and his wife and kids to go stay at the next brothel down the street. That's just not going to work out. So they didn't do it that way. Instead, they relied upon other Christians to open their homes and to extend their own food, their own money, and their own hospitality. That's what's happening in the Scripture. Which means that God's people have always been characterized by lifestyles that put their resources into the church collective. This is the way we do it today. We are a people who are characterized. We're not like the rest of the world. We come to church and we put our money collectively into the church to expand the kingdom of God and and move the gospel forward around the world. Our neighbors may think we're crazy. When you say, hey, you know, you know, the poor little girl selling Girl Scout cookies on the front porch. I'm just like, I just gave the last thing I had to missions. I'm sorry. She don't understand that. And when it worked, the, 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 gosh, the United Way Nazis used to get me when I worked in the business world and, you know, forced me to get so much of my paycheck, you know. Not that, you know, just it was a kind of a corporate pressure that happened. You guys get it if you work in the corporate world. And I'm like, I'd just given all my money to missions. You know, I'd given it to the church. I'd given it to spread the gospel because we are people. This is what we do, people of of Jesus Christ. We take portions of our wealth, portions of our goods, and almost everybody in this room, I would imagine, gives 10% or more, many of you much more. You dedicate a portion of your budget consistently to the work of God. The world thinks we're crazy, but the Bible says this is what Christians have always done. Because, see, today things have changed. We don't say, hey, Peters, we got a missionary in town. Can you host him? Nobody ever calls upon you to open your home and be inconvenienced for the gospel. They were constantly called upon for this. We are never called upon for this because the system has changed a little bit. Now now the biggest challenge we've got is, is there any money? And how do we move it to where the need is? Those are our big challenges today. But God's people have always been characterized as people willing to commit a portion of wealth or their goods in hospitality for the ministry. Now, now let me just begin to wrap this up now. In our modern culture here in America, our emphasis on individualism and autonomy has led us to become a society of strangers. We don't even know our neighbors. We have a society that, if it's not careful, turns into a bunch of xenophobes where we're suspicious of strangers. We're fearful that somebody's going to get our stuff. We're fearful of the person we don't know, afraid that they're going to do us harm. So we lock everybody out of our little private enclave. That's exactly what Diotrephes, the bad guy, did. It's a big challenge here in Third John. Contrast that to the hospitality that John's talking about, because hospitality, and if you miss this, just lock in right here for a second. Contrast that to hospitality because hospitality must begin with an attitude of openness and vulnerability. 
that allows you to share yourself and your resources with whoever Christ is bringing into your life. And that openness, the sense of openness that we have, allows us to be vulnerable and to take risks for the gospel's sake. I tried to think through what John would say if we could teleport John down here and look at our churches in America. I think if John the Apostle were alive today, he'd have a lot to say about our obsession with being comfortable while the world dies and goes to hell. I think John would have a lot to say to us about our preoccupation with living, living a lifestyle without being inconvenienced for the gospel. Because all the early Christians were inconvenienced for the gospel. I think if we could teleport John to America, he'd have a lot to say to our churches. And he'd probably be brokenhearted to enter churches and be a fly on the wall and experience the coldness that new people feel every Sunday when they're not greeted with love in our churches. Listen, it's tragic when believers make no attempt to build relationships with other believers in the body. It's tragic. It means the body is sick and broken. When believers make no attempt to make friendships and show hospitality to other believers in the congregation. John might well ask our congregations in America, how can you worship for years with people and never invite them into your home? How? Can you claim to love God when you will not share your hospitality with his children? Now this is John, and he's tough on this. Pulls no punches. Because hospitality is how we demonstrate the love of Christ. Hospitality is how we express our willingness to be partners in ministry. Let me say it this way. Hospitality is the conduct of someone who is practicing the gospel. If you say, Pastor, I'm in for the gospel, are you showing hospitality? Are you hospitable? Are you open to relationships? Are you open to being inconvenienced? Are you open to giving and sharing? Let me close it with this note. John now draws it to a contrast as he closes the introduction letter. And here's what he's about to say, and then I'll read it for you. He says, Gaius, you're doing the right thing. Diotrephes is doing the wrong thing. Let me read it. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers And stops those who want to welcome the brothers and puts them out of the church. Boy, now that's tough. Let me see if I can put this in some simple English. John reveals something we already know by our experiences of being in churches for a good portion of our lives. Some religious leaders are focused on putting themselves first. Some religious leaders pull others away from a good church. Some religious leaders refuse to acknowledge the authority of the church elders some talk wicked nonsense some refuse to welcome Christians outside their little circle and they go so far as to exclude people through church discipline that about sums up what John just described and here's his ending beloved do not imitate evil but imitate good 
Whoever does good, where are they from? Yeah, that's from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from us. Let me stop right there because the rest just says goodbye, I love you. Now here's what I want your takeaway to be. The introductory letter, 3 John, is really a challenge to missions. And it's a challenge for every follower of Christ to be hospitable. That doesn't mean opening your home. It could mean that, but I doubt it means that for you. What it really means is a willingness to share your resources to advance the mission of Christ. K.P. Johan in 2004 cited a statistic. He said the average Christian in America gives a penny a day or less to missions. Translated, the average Christian in America gives less than $4 a year to help spread the gospel around the world and advance the kingdom of God. Now I want to commend you because the people in this room give a whole lot more than $4 a year on average to missions. Some of you give 40, some of you give 400, some of you give 4,000, maybe some of you gives 40,000, I don't know. And I want to commend you for that because hospitality is part of what this is all about. And it makes it, we have to sacrifice and be inconvenienced to further the gospel. The main hindrance is, is not that we lack missionaries. The main hindrance is not that people are not receptive to the gospel. Good night. We've already proven in our own experiments here that if we share the gospel, thousands will call upon Jesus. The biggest hindrance to worldwide missions is there's not enough resources. When the Holy Spirit's moving in a particular place, the resources are just not readily available to act quickly and to come in with what needs to happen. Now I want to commend you because I believe you're doing a really great job. And I want to challenge those of you who don't yet give to missions or don't give even your tithes and offerings. Listen, sharing the burden of the ministry is what we do together as, as a collective body following Jesus Christ. And I want you to know your partnership means everything to these Christians around the world. All right, here's the summary. Don't be like Dotrophies. Be like Gaius. Be like Demetrius. Be like John. Be like Jesus Christ who loved so much he gave. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Father, thank you for the word of God this morning that pierces our hearts, challenges our thoughts, challenges our intellect. Lord, thank you for challenging our hospitality and our works this morning and helping us be able to reassess in light of the scripture. Lord, as you're speaking to hearts all over the room this morning, Lord, we just open our hearts and minds and give you the free reign to challenge us, to draw out of us, to draw out of our volitional will the decision you want us to make this morning. Lord, we are open to your leadership right now. And Lord, I pray that you would challenge every person in this room about their part in spreading the gospel of Christ around this world, about our part in hospitality and generosity and openness our part in holding the truth about Jesus Christ and not wavering, our part in loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Work in our hearts right now. While your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'm going to ask you very quietly, stand to your feet. I'm going to begin to draw the service to a conclusion now. 
just rise to your feet in prayer and I want to pray with you for a moment and I want to challenge you right now as you pray to God right now I would like you to ask God God would you speak to me about the steps I need to take because of this message and I'm going to make another statement to you while you're praying how can you call yourself a child of God and never open your home to another believer never show hospitality to one of your brothers or sisters in this church who need encouragement who need to feel your love disciple makers you need to tell your disciples how much you love them they need to hear those words they need your love they need your encouragement if you're here this morning you've never received Christ there be someone in the back of this room as we dismiss who can show you how to have a relationship with Jesus Christ they'll be glad to pray with you and help you make that most important decision of a lifetime for we who are in prayer right now we're praying God challenge us we are not content to be passive challenge us God as we get into this study and show us how to love like you love and how to live and how to walk in the truth as Gaius walks in the truth. Father, wrap your arms around us this morning. Have your way in our hearts. Lord, as we go to our homes this morning, let the words of God remain. Let them burn in our hearts all week long as we think about what it means to walk before you in the truth. Lord, work in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing a closing chorus. Have a blessed week. I'll see you next Sunday morning.